This morning we come back to 1 Peter, which is what we have been working our way through, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 21, and so I would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll begin this morning by reading our verses for us, verses 17 through 21. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Years ago, a young boy whose father was a pastor was put in jail for stealing some merchandise from a department store. His father happened to be playing golf at the time with a couple of the other leaders in the church. And he received a phone call while he was out on the golf course to come down to the jail to pick up his son. Thinking it was a mistake, the pastor took these men with him to the police station to pick up his son. This incident left a lasting impression on this boy's mind. As he received repeated reminders from those men and from others in the congregation afterward about who his father was, they would tell him this, having a father like yours. How could you have done what you did? In a similar manner, that is what Peter is reminding these believers of who have just been commanded to live a holy life. Peter commands them to have hope in verse 13. Then he commands them to live holy lives in verse 15. And now he commands them to live reverent lives here on earth. Why? Why do they do that? Because of who their father is. We're to conduct our lives in fear as we live here on this earth because we belong to the family of God. Now, let me just remind you quickly of verse 16, where Peter says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We studied that verse three Sundays ago. We then took a little bit of a break to study the holiness of God as we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 in the throne room of God. But we might be tempted after reading those words, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And we might be tempted to make excuses and say, well, God is perfectly holy, but I can't ever get there. Peter knows that. 
Yes, we all understand that we will never be perfectly holy, perfectly sinless this side of heaven. We get that. We understand that. But that doesn't give us license to live an unholy life. And we might be tempted to think, well, God is out of this world. God is so far beyond us. There's no way that I can be holy. Well, notice what Peter does here in verse 17. Notice how he begins there. He says, if you address as Father. Who is that? That's God. He is our Father. Notice what Peter does here. If you are thinking that there is no way that you can be holy, remember who you belong to. You belong to the one who is perfectly holy. You belong to God. You are a part of His family now. So how should you live? You should live like you belong to His family. You should live like He is your Father. You should live holy lives. And specifically now as we get into verse 17, we're going to see how Peter tells us that as those who belong to God, we are to fear Him. We're to fear Him. We're to live reverential lives that fear Him and therefore produces obedience to Him as we live our lives here on this earth. And so, as we take these five verses here this morning, we're going to break them down into two points. Two points. The first point that we're going to look at is what we will call the command to reverent living. The command to reverent living. Look again at verse 17. This is where we find the command. Notice what Peter says there. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now, notice in the NAS, you see the first word in verse 17 as the word if. The word if. In the Greek, it is and if. The word and is in there. And if. And although this is a new sentence here that runs all the way down through verse 21, it's a continuing thought from what Peter had just said before. He's continuing his thought from what he stated previously. And what did Peter say before? Look back at verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, as obedient what? Children. As obedient children. What does that mean? It means that we are children of obedience who belong to God. As compared to children of disobedience who belong to the devil. The children of disobedience belong to Satan. But we are children of obedience who belong to God. Peter has introduced this idea here that we are children. And as children, we belong to God. And therefore, we are to live our lives in obedience to Him as we strive to live holy lives. 
And there's this, this family concept here. Again in verse 17, you are children of God, and therefore you call him Father. You call him Father. We used to have Satan as our father. All unbelievers have Satan as their father. We used to have Satan as our father, but now we as believers in Christ have God as our father. So Peter says there in verse 17, if you address as father. And what Peter is not saying here is that you might or might not address God as father. He's not saying you might repeat the Lord's prayer and say, our God who art in heaven. That's not what he's saying here. But he's saying here, as those who belong to God, we do address Him as Father. Which means we are a part of His family. We belong to Him. And He has all authority over us as our Father. Notice that word if there at the beginning of verse 17. In the Greek, this is what we call a first-class conditional. I'm going to get a little nerdy with you. But this is called a first-class conditional, which means that this is something that is assumed to be true. It is something that is assumed to be true. Writers will use this first-class conditional if to make a point. They will say, if... If you address him as father, and I know that you do, that's what Peter is saying here. He's assuming it to be true. Then this is what you're to do. This is how you're to live. Now, notice as we continue in verse 17 that Peter says about God, not only is he our father, the one who is in charge of us, who has all authority, but he is also the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And at this point, this is where the fear of God should set into our hearts. Because he's a what? A judge. A God is a judge. Yes, last week we learned about the love of God. And remember, as Todd was saying, we can't swing the pendulum. Right? We've got to have a balance here. We have to understand that our God is a judge. That He is holy. That He has all authority over us. That He is our loving Father who has forgiven us all of our sins and given us eternal life. But he's also a judge who is going to impartially judge us according to our work. Now, many people will say here, well, I thought that God won't judge me because I'm saved. It's true that if you are a child of God, he won't judge you in the sense of bringing any condemnation upon you. He won't do that. He won't condemn you to hell. You belong to Him. He is your Father. Romans 8.1 Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that truth doesn't stop us from fearing God. 
Because God is a God who will judge impartially. What does that mean? That God is a God who will judge impartially? It means He doesn't look at the outside of man. Whether he's rich or poor or a king or a peasant or he's a CEO or just some employee, common worker on the job. All will be judged by God without partiality. Without favoritism. God shows no favoritism. And no one will be able to, be, to hide behind some kind of hypocritical externals. God sees everything and He will show no preferential treatment to anyone. All will be exposed to Him because He knows it all. And how is God going to judge? Notice what Peter says there. According to each one's work. He will judge according to each one's work. Now, here is how I believe we should understand this. At the final judgment, all will be judged. All will be judged. And what is God going to look at? Our works. He's going to look at our works. And what is going to be shown is the true condition of one's heart. The true condition of the heart will be revealed. For the believer, he will show that he was saved by faith and the good works that he did will be evidence of that true saving faith. Now, this does not mean that he was saved by his good works. Understand, that is not what I'm saying here. No one is saved by any good works. But we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. By God's grace. But the good works that we do as believers prove or are the evidence of true, genuine, saving faith. In fact, isn't that what James tells us? James 2.17, he says this, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. You may claim to have faith, but he says if there's no works that follow that faith, it's dead faith. And then in James 2.26, he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. True saving faith and good works go together. And that's the life of the believer. But a person who claims to have faith in God, but did not live out that faith in obedience to God, will show that they never had saving faith. In fact, isn't that what Jesus tells us in Matthew 7.22? Where he says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Jesus will declare what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who, what? Practice lawlessness. 
you who practice lawlessness. The practice of lawlessness was the evidence that they never had true saving faith, even though they said, Lord, Lord. They called him the right name. They even acknowledged that he is Lord over the whole universe. And that's right, whether someone acknowledges it or not, he is the king of the universe, right? He is Lord over all. He doesn't need our approval on that. He is Lord. And these people even say, Lord, Lord. But they are those who practiced lawlessness. Their works were that of disobedience to God. And God will judge them for that. But even as believers, we will be judged according to our works. And remember, we have been saved for what? We have been saved for good works. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him so that we would walk in them. We have been saved. God has saved us not by good works, but He saved us for good works. And God will judge us on those good works. What will God judge us for? Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.10. The Apostle Paul tells us this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of christ and we won't be condemned for our sin because that was paid for at the cross right all of our sin was paid for at the cross but we will be rewarded we will be rewarded for the good works that we have done. The judgment that we will face will not be to determine our salvation, but it will be to determine our future reward. You see, our works as believers still matter. They still matter to God. And those works will determine our future reward. And it was this judgment then that the Apostle Paul thought about as he understood as that was revealed to him and he understood that he is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day as a believer. It was that judgment seat that drove him to obedience. And it is the judgment of God that should motivate us to obedience as well. It's that judgment seat of Christ that should cause us to fear. We are going to stand before the judge one day. Again, not to be condemned, but to be rewarded for the things that we did. But that should drive us to fear God. In fact, notice what Peter then commands in verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Does God care about our conduct? Of course He does. 
course God cares about our conduct. In fact, listen to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 18. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. It was his desire to conduct himself honorably in all things because he knows that God cares about the conduct of our lives. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. God even cares about how we conduct ourselves here at church. He cares about our works. He cares about our conduct. God cares about our conduct and how we live our lives. And how are we to live it? How do we live our lives? Notice what Peter says there. He says, in fear. In fear. Now, what is this fear that Peter's talking about? Well, you may have been terrified of God before you got saved. You were terrified that God would send you to hell if you died in your sins. And that was a good fear that drove you to Christ because you understood that God is the ultimate judge. And it was a terrifying fear that drove you to Christ. But now, as a believer, you no longer have a terrifying fear of being condemned to hell forever like you did as an unbeliever. But you have a reverential fear. In awe of God. You see, the moment that you got saved, you didn't stop fearing God. Your fear just turned from a terrifying fear to a reverential awe fear of our God. That fear, which is no longer a terrifying kind of fear, turns into a trembling fear into a a reverent fear, a fear that is in awe of God and desires to honor Him. One pastor says, there is a deep and abiding trembling that happens, not because you are going to be condemned, but because you could have been condemned. You see that? That's the fear. That's a healthy fear. And as a child of God, there's now a reverence for God that you must have because you now understand who God is. And that He has rescued you from an eternity in hell. God has done that. And this fear then drives you and motivates you to love Him and to worship Him and to live your life for Him. That's what that fear is to do. You see, the fear of God is something that all believers must have. We must have it. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 12, 5. He says, but I will warn you. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Do you know who Jesus said that to? To his disciples. He said that to his disciples. 
He didn't say that to all the unbelieving world. He said that to his own disciples. To these guys who are Christians, who believe in Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one. They've been saved by him. It was those guys that Jesus said, fear him. Fear God. And someone might say, but, but those guys are believers and, and they're commanded to fear God. Why? Because that fear of God, that reverence for God, motivates us to live in obedience to Him. Do you remember what happened right after the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 5? This is the first church discipline case. The whole church. The very, very first church discipline case in which Peter was personally involved in. Peter was there. Peter saw what happened in the first church discipline case with Ananias and Sapphira, who did what? They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And who was it that confronted them about their sin? It was Peter. Peter was the one who confronted them. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened to them? Dead. On the spot. God killed them. God did that. And listen to what Acts 5.11 says. It says this. After Ananias and Sapphira are dead, it says this. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Great fear came upon the church. It wasn't just the outsiders who had fear. They looked and they went, whoa, don't know if I want to be a part of that. (laughs) That's what your God will do? He's that serious about sin? Yeah, He is. God's very serious about sin. He doesn't take sin lightly. And fear, great fear, came over the whole church. There was this sense of awe and reverence that came from the people. A sense of, don't mess with God. Don't play games with God. Don't think that you continue to live a life of disobedience to God and get away with it. God sees all things and God will judge everyone. Including His own children. So what should this then produce in His children? A healthy fear. An awe. A reverence of Him. Not a terrifying fear, but a healthy fear of God. A fear of or a reverence that stems from knowing who God is and how serious God takes sin. And this should then motivate us to live our lives in obedience to Him. It's a fear of God that all believers must have, but that unbelievers don't have. Unbelievers don't have 
this fear. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 3.18 about unbelievers and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Unbelievers don't have fear, but we should. In fact, did you know that the fear of God is even a part of the new covenant promise? Listen to what God says about this. In Jeremiah 32, 38, it says this, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. That right there in Jeremiah 32, that's the promise of the new covenant. That's new covenant language. New covenant. You and I are living the new covenant. And God says, they will fear me always, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. God puts the fear of Him into our hearts so that we will not turn away from Him. It is this healthy, reverent fear of God that keeps us near to Him. It doesn't drive us away from Him, but holds us in Him. We fear Him, and that fear then motivates us to live for Him. Now, notice what Peter says at the end of verse 17. He says, during the time of your stay on earth. I love this because this puts things into perspective here. Remember, your time here on earth is just a short stay. It's not very long. The boys asked me yesterday, Dad, how old is John MacArthur? I said, 84 years old. Whoa, that's old. <laughs> Just a short time. Just here for a short stay on earth. We're just sojourners, pilgrims who are just passing through. This world here is not our home. And Peter wants his readers to be reminded of this. Why? Because here's what he's saying. Don't become like them. Remember, you're just passing through. This is just a short stay here on this earth. And during your short stay on this earth, don't become like the world. For them, they have no fear of God, and they live for the here and now, and they live for themselves and for this world. But our home is heaven. With our Father, who has all authority over us, and whom we are to fear during our short stay here on this earth. Live with a healthy fear of God that drives you to obedience to Him. That's what Peter is commanding. And so that's the command to reverent living. Let's look now at our second point, point number two, what we will call the case for reverent living. 
the case for reverent living. Look at verse 18. Notice what Peter says there. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Stop right there. Peter doesn't just give a command to live in reverential fear, but he now gives the reason for why we should live in reverential fear. He makes a case for why you should have a reverence for God. And this has to do now with what we know, what you and I know to be true. You see, this is why doctrinal truth is so important to know. It's doctrinal truth that impacts our practical living. In fact, one commentator says, the practical call of verse 17 is grounded in the highest and most sacred doctrinal truths. It is a knowledge that should continually influence daily life. Your knowledge of God, your knowledge of the Word of God is what drives you in your practical living, in your daily living. If you understand who God is, you know that God is the judge of all, both the living and the dead. You have that knowledge in your mind and you understand that doctrinal truth that God is the judge. What should that do? Should impact our practical living, our daily living. Peter here gives us some truths to be known. What is it that we know to be true? Well, number one, that Christ has redeemed us. That Christ has redeemed us. Notice Peter uses the word redeemed there in verse 18. That is one of the greatest words in all of the Bible. Redeemed. Church, you and I are the redeemed. We've been redeemed. This word redeemed refers to the act of deliverance by the payment of a ransom. You and I have been redeemed and Christ made the payment. Now, who did Christ make that payment to? Who did He make the payment to? Some think that the ransom was paid to the devil. But that's not true because Satan has never been in any kind of position to make demands on God. He has no authority over God. And it is the holiness of God, not any supposed sovereignty of God that requires a just payment or penalty to be paid for sin. It was God who required the payment, not Satan. Because Satan can't make any demands. And it is God's wrath that is our just punishment, but Christ redeemed us from what? The wrath of God. And so, who was the ransom paid to? It's paid to God, not to Satan. And it was Christ who made the payment for us. In the Greek, this verb redeemed is a passive voice, meaning it was something that was done to us. Active voice means we do the action. Passive means the action happens to us. Peter is saying 
Why should you live in fear of God while you are alive on this earth? Because, remember, He has redeemed you. He's redeemed you. He has given you something that you didn't work for and that you couldn't pay for. He did it all. By His grace. Not by anything that you and I have done, but it's all by His grace. Then Peter gives us a negative aspect here, not with perishable things, and then he gives a positive aspect, but with precious blood. Notice he says there, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. He tells us about these perishable things that people highly prized. People prize silver. But if that's not enough, not even gold, which is of greater value than silver, can redeem your life of sin. Remember in Acts chapter 8, when Simon the magician wanted the power that Peter and John had? And he wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? He saw them work the works that they did, and he says, how much does it cost? I'm willing to pay. I want that. And how did Peter respond? Listen to Acts 8.20. Peter said, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. One translation conveys Peter's words to say this. To hell with you and your money. Pretty strong language. And it is. That's strong language that Peter is using there. You think that you could buy this with money? Something that is perishable? May you and your money go to hell. Pretty strong language. Peter had experienced a man who tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from him. As if somehow he could pay it with his own money. As if somehow he could do enough to gain the work of God to gain the Holy Spirit Himself. But He reminds us here in our passage that we can't be redeemed with silver or gold or any other kinds of religious traditions that are passed down from generation to generation. That's what He's talking about there when He says, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. There was pagan idolatry and there was tons of money that was passed around all over. You still see it in churches today. And it was these religious works and these religious actions that just continued to be passed down from one generation to the next. And Peter's saying, none of that works. None of that can redeem you. Your religious stuff that you grew up with None of that can save you. 
Any money that you have that you think you could pay to God to pay for your salvation doesn't work. It's all perishable. Your money can't buy you salvation and neither can your pagan religious traditions. But look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now we know what has redeemed us. Now we get to the positive. The negative, nothing vain and useless like silver or gold or religious traditions can redeem you. But the positive, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. I'll tell you how you can be redeemed. By the precious blood of Christ. Notice how Peter calls, how he describes the money there. He calls it perishable. But notice how he describes the blood of Christ. He says it is precious. It's precious. That is, the blood of Christ is of high value. It is to be highly esteemed and honored. It's precious. One commentator says, the cost of Calvary is beyond all computation. The value of the shed blood of Jesus is beyond all our comprehension. And notice Peter says there, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. John told us what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There He is. He's the Lamb of God. The Lamb there giving reference to the Passover Lamb that was to be slain for the purchase of the firstborn. We see this back in Exodus 12 where God established the Passover where the Passover lamb was to be slain and the blood was to be put on the doorposts on the two sides and above, symbolizing what? The cross. The blood of the lamb. An unblemished lamb that they were to bring in. And it was the blood of the lamb that would make the payment for the firstborn. If there wasn't any blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would come in and kill the firstborn. But if there was blood there, the angel would pass over. Making the purchase. That lamb making the purchase for that firstborn. It's all pointing to who? To Christ. It's all pointing to Christ. Christ is our perfect, unblemished, spotless Lamb who purchased our redemption and redeemed us with His precious blood. And if that doesn't cause you to fear God and live your life in fear of Him during your stay here on earth, well, let me give you some more knowledge. More truth about Christ. Not only has Christ redeemed us, but number two, Christ has appeared for us. Christ has appeared for us. Look at verse 20. Notice what Peter says there. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Me? Yeah, that's right. You. For the sake of you. This is an amazing verse. Notice Peter says that Christ was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world. 
before the foundation of the world. This is the pre-existence of Christ or what we can call the eternality of Christ. He always existed. He didn't just begin to exist at His incarnation. But He's always existed. The second person of the Trinity. He has always been in eternity past. He was foreknown. Now if you remember back in verse 2, Peter already told us that we have been chosen according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And implied in that foreknowledge is that whatever God foreknows, He also preordains. Whatever God foreknows, He also preordains. And what did God then preordain? That Christ would appear in the last times. That Christ would appear in the last times. And when did that happen? When He came to earth and took on flesh. And what did He do when He came to earth? He went to a cross to make a payment for us. fact, isn't that what Peter says here at the end of verse 20? He says, for the sake of you. For the sake of you. God's foreknowledge. In His foreknowledge, He preordained His perfect plan to send His one and only Son to come and die on a cross. Listen, church. For you. For you. God thought of you in eternity past as He made His plan to send His Son to come and die to purchase you. And look, here's Peter's argument. You are to live in fear of God during your time here on earth. Why? Not only because He redeemed you, but because that plan of redemption was something that was in the mind of God before the world was ever created. Listen, your redemption was no afterthought to God. It was not an afterthought. Oh, okay, I, I guess I'll show pity on that person and I'll save them. On that guy. On that woman. No. It's not our God. Your redemption was in His mind in eternity past. His redemption of you was planned in eternity past and Christ appeared to accomplish that plan for you and for me. It was for our sake. As one commentator says, what a tragedy it would be to throw all these privileges away by ceasing to live in the fear of God. What a tragedy. To think of all that God has done to save us. To throw it all away and just live how we want to live. 
You see, knowing what God has done for us in Christ should motivate us to fear Him and to live in obedience to His Word. But that is not all that there is to know. Peter wants to give us some more doctrinal truths here. Not only do we know that Christ has redeemed us and Christ has appeared for us, but number three, Christ has been raised for our hope. Christ has been raised for our hope. Notice verse 21. Who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It is through Christ that we are believers in God. There is no other way to God. It is through Christ alone. Through His work, His perfect life, His death, burial, and resurrection. Through the work that Christ accomplished. It is through the knowledge of Christ alone that we come to the Father. In fact, isn't that what Jesus told us in John 14, 6? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. One commentator says, without Christ, we should only dread God. Whereas through Him, we believe and hope and love. And we believe And we have faith and hope because notice what God did. He raised Christ from the dead and gave Him glory. And just as we know that Christ was raised from the dead and glorified, listen church, that's our future promise as well. The same thing is promised to us. That we will be raised with Christ and we will be glorified with Him. That's our future. And we can be certain of that fact. Do you see how important doctrinal truth is to our practical life? It's so important. It's so important. We should live our days here on earth in fear of the God who planned in eternity past to send His Son to redeem us from our sin and then to raise Him again on the third day to life so that we could have hope of an eternal future with Him through faith in His Son. Let me ask you, how are you living out your days here on this earth? How are you living out your days here on this earth? Are you living in reverential fear of God? Is the fear of God motivating you to a life of obedience to Him? Remember what it cost Him. It cost Him His Son to redeem you. And now that you've been redeemed, you are a part of His family and you can call Him Abba, Father, Daddy. We can run to Him. He is our Father because we belong to Him. 
And as our Father, who is the judge of all, may we have a reverential fear of Him. And may we live our lives here on this earth with a reverential fear of our Father who did everything so that you and I, as His children, could be saved and have the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of You. We are amazed by You by your perfect plan. A plan that was in your mind in eternity past. A plan where you had planned within the Trinity to send your Son to this earth to take on flesh and to live as a man, to be one of us, and to live a perfect life and then die as a criminal. To go to a cross and to make the payment for our sins. And Father, we thank You that Christ did not stay dead, but that He rose again on the third day and that we have the promise of a future resurrection of eternal life with You because our Savior has been risen. Oh God, we thank You for this marvelous, magnificent, wonderful plan of Yours to redeem low, lost, wretched sinners like us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in fear of you with the reverential awe of who you are as our Father, that it would motivate us and drive us to live in obedience to your word. Lord, we know that your commands are not burdensome, but we know that we have freedom as we live in obedience to your word. Father, help us to do that out of a fear of you, to live holy lives, knowing the hope that we have during this short stay on this earth when you come back to take us to be with you. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning and pray that we would live our lives in fear of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.